Don't worry, listeners. No need to adjust your dial. This is Landline Radio. Welcome to the end of the dial at the end of the world. I'm the host, and we bring you stories too chilling and strange to be true. Right from the heart of towns where the lines between this world and the next connect. Stories from people just like you. For those long, dark, lonely nights driving down roads that never seem to end. We'll be here. And don't worry if you can't find us. We'll find you. Leyline Radio is from Dreamer Productions and can be found monthly exclusively starting in October on their Patreon feed. Follow the link in the show notes below to hear and enjoy. Actors to places. Thank you, places. It's time to exit stage death. Welcome back to Exit Stage Death. As always, I'm your co-host, Maddie Limerick. I'm your other co-host, Emily Martinez. And these are the chilling true stories behind your favorite Broadway shows. (laughs) 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 Now, you know, Em, we've talked about it a lot, but you and I met doing a production of Hair in 2017, which was five years ago. Can you believe that? Those were the days. (laughs) So I thought as we are approaching near the end of our first season that I wanted to talk a little bit about hair because there are a couple true crime-esque stories that are behind its 55-year legacy. How did I not know about this before? I'm literally like, when you mentioned you want to do this, I'm like, I'm not going to look anything up because I want to learn. Yeah, it's a little weird because also depending on who you talk to, really colors how the story is told, Mm -hmm. um, which happens a lot. There's uh, one documentary, which is pretty good. Uh, It's very dated now. It's called Hair Let the Sunshine In. that was made and James Ragney is in it and it's got like Melba Moore and David Carradine uh, and David Carradine has a very specific outlook on everything but yeah so we're back with the Vietnam War it was raging and for the first time an entire war effort was being televised and information was constantly being delivered into homes via television radio and newspapers this is when the like morning evening news cycles were starting Mm. on multiple channels. So kind of no matter where you looked, there was uh, war. And because of this, the American people were being swept up in this propaganda-like movement that every made everybody kind of think what we were doing was good by invading this country. Now, I'm not going to get into the semantics of why or how. uh, That's a whole other podcast That is years of podcast series, yeah. So while we were using it actually as an opportunity to uh, continue our uh, imperialization of the world, but also test things like chemical warfare on our own soldiers, uh, many of whom are still dealing with the long-term health and psychological benefits yeah. to this day. But because of the youth culture movement that started in the 1950s, you have young people who had developed identities and lives outside of just graduating school, getting a job, and having a family. Now, that's what a lot of us think of the 1950s as. But this was a time when we had teen beach movies. We had uh, music culture. We had teens who were allowed to be teens. But this also meant that they uh, were young people who were getting the opportunity to build their own opinion and knowledge base based outside beyond what their parents were saying. Mm -hmm. Which led to a huge outcry of young people against the war. And ultimately, the forced draft of hundreds of thousands of American youth, mostly from poor white communities and communities of color. There was a disproportionately large amount of black and non-white youth who were being drafted. Now, this is obviously uh, massively simplified because, as you said, we could do multiple seasons of a podcast just on what post-World War II America did and how it led to us... Uh, being an international conflict after international conflict after international conflict. Most of us that were born in the mid to late 80s have literally never lived a part of our life where America was not in war. Yeah, that's so true. So out of this political movement came music and art and a new way of life and thinking for many Americans. 
and this was fueled by a new exploration into psychology, philosophy, and psychedelic drugs. Now, out of out of the out of this also came a new genre of musical theater, because until 1955, we were in what was called the golden age of musicals. So the late 50s and 60s, we were exploring what that meant beyond it, but really we hadn't flexed any muscles that was like specifically not made for older folks or people who were taking theater other than Bye Bye Birdie. Now, mm-hmm. I will literally beat down anybody that says Bye Bye Birdie is the first rock musical because it is not. It is still a musical theater sound that was about a, a pop star of the time. Right, right. Now, this new genre is the rock musical, and it started with Hair, the Tribal Rock Love Musical. Uh, with lyrics and book by Jerome Ragney and James Rado and Galt McDermott, who was brought in to write the score. The show is based on Ragney and Rado's observations of hippie culture. Now, I thought they kind of considered themselves hippies. And they they were, as far as, like, an actor in the 60s that was a theater actor uh, was, you know. Were they, like, um, weekend hippies that, like, would go back to, like, their corporate jobs I'm no, I mean, they lived in the village. They were like working on Broadway at the time, but like Broadway at this point, keep in mind, like you still had like three to six week productions of Shakespeare that were being mounted with mm-hmm. full, beautiful sets and everything. So, you know, you could work six to 12 weeks of the year and be considered a professional actor, but like you were living in the village, you were among artists and creatives and things, yeah. you know? And so this is when we saw like La Mama and the off Broadway and the off, 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 off Broadway, like experimental theater movement came from. So that's where a lot of hair is kind of devised. And it, you know, it based their observations of hippie culture and is spliced with themes of free, open sexuality, drug use, and anti-war ideology. The story follows a tribe of New York City living misfits from different cultural backgrounds who are following the kind of free love aspects and are protesting the war. Uh, as one man, Claude, receives his draft notice, uh, but at the end of Act One is unable to burn his draft card when everyone comes together to burn all of the men's draft cards. Mm. This leads to an introspective journey on a drug trip in act two where he decides he's going to war and subsequently he dies in combat which is the end of the show the show featured and still features depending on the production a groundbreaking nude singing at the end of act one that shook the theater community to its core when it debuted off broadway at the public theater run by joe pap in 1967 i didn't know that was the public yeah it's the public which is why the public public, it's why the public revived it in uh 2008 Mm -hmm. 2007, 2008, just after its anniversary uh, for the public. And they did it at Shakespeare in the Park. And then that is why it moved to Broadway from there. Um, yeah. And so, the, again, this was a lot of people who were coming in. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who would go on to be very famous who were in these productions. Um, it was really funny. Shelley Plimpton, who played Chrissy off Broadway, is Martha Plimpton's mother. Oh, no, she was Jeannie. She was Jeannie. Yeah. Forgive me. She was Jeannie. And she was actually pregnant during the run of the show. And Martha Plimpton was born into the hair cast, which I think is the cutest thing that. ever because I worship her. Um, now, because of the public nudity and performance laws in New York, they had to stand completely still at this moment. Uh, so it didn't upset law enforcement. So it was one of those things that, like, mm-hmm. if they were dancing and moving around, it was considered rude. And so there was like, and probably like pornographic in a way. Yeah. So there was this moment where there was like all of this fabric and things. And I think it kind of went up Mm -hmm. and then they like stripped underneath of it and then dropped around them. And they just stood there and sang the end of, uh, where do I go? Mm -hmm. Which in its moment is very strong and very powerful because there's always that question, even if you're doing or not doing the, the nude scene of how do we stage the end of, of that Right. That song. And, you know, there's even to a point where I argue now, is the nude scene still poignant because we have a very different outlook on nudity and performance Mm. in today's society? Um, So the show would move uptown from the public as it's finding producers who, because this is a time when people who were in corporate sectors and things were looking to produce theater as like a patronage because they themselves couldn't create art, but they had the money to help people create art. And Michael Butler, who ended up producing Broadway said that he had never seen a anti-war piece like hair. And that's how a lot of like the money came into be. But in 1968, it actually moved uptown to a club called the cheetah, which was a strip club. 
So they would do performances of hair at like seven or eight. And then the girls would take the stage at 10. Uh, <laughs> and so this was kind of in the heart of the famous now time, uh, Times Square theater district, but when it was still seedy and not safe and those kinds of things. And then it would move on to the Biltmore theater on Broadway. Now the conflict of the show starts with its move to Broadway. The show producers were promised that the show's opening would still make them eligible for the 1968 Tony Awards. So this is going to be a good point to say that altogether as artists, people love hair, but the old school musical theater people, actors, directors, producers hated the show of untrained actors, a rock sound, all of these things that were so foreign to them. And so, but as they were moving, the eligibility for the new show's opening was magically moved back to March instead of May or April, which we have now. So Hare was suddenly not eligible for the 1969-1970 Tony season. Wait, can you can you explain explain yeah, why that so, is? So it's obviously what is happening. I believe it's the drama league that runs the Tonys. Mm -hmm. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong. The league was hoping the show would close before it was eligible for its next season. Okay. So they would not have to be embarrassed by having hair on the telecast. Because keep in mind, the Tonys have always been broadcast, I believe, since the mid-60s or it was early 70s on television mm -hmm. or they were at least filmed. And so a lot of the league, much like today, does not act in the show's best interest. Mm -hmm. Um and this is, I believe, pre-actors equity. And so this is a lot of thing where there's a lot of unchecked balances in just the white old people running it. Yeah. Um, but it would stay open and be nominated for Best Musical and Best Score okay. in the 1960, yeah, so the 1969-1970 season. So that following year. Oh, good. Um, good, good. So, you know, they opened, I, oh God, I believe it's like May they opened. Uh, so like now, you have to open before, I believe it's the middle of April to qualify for Tony Awards and you have to be running a certain amount of weeks in order to qualify for Tony Awards. It's okay. why like, it's why like comedians that come and do one week only only don't qualify for like best show, like best, like one person show mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. Um, but it would be nominated for both best musical and best original score, but lost both of these to 1976, but beat 1976 for the Grammy award that next year for the best uh, cast recording or best soundtrack. What do you, what do you think would be better in, what would you rather win a Tony or a, a Grammy? Honestly, for this kind of show, a Grammy, because yeah. it's reaching the people who need to hear it. Yeah. yeah. I always, well, and also keep in mind, this is when musical songs are being recorded by pop artists and are on the radio. Mm -hmm. So like everybody mm -hmm. knows Age of Aquarius and Let the Sunshine because of Fifth Dimension, um, Easy to Be Hard, um, Manchester, England, um, Where Do I Go? We're all recorded by pop artists as well. Yeah. So like it was, hair was the moment. Yeah. It, it, um, and they would go on to perform at the Tony Awards uh, like you do. They were introduced by Ethel Merman and Zira Mostel. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Who, oh, who, well, they made a mockery of the show and they made fun of the actors on stage who were like in the darkness on stage. Yeah, they hated the show. The, the community hated the show. They hated these young artists that hadn't quote put in their time. And the, it was all their jokes were met with thunderous laughter oh by the audience. God. So imagine you're like 19, 20 years old. You're literally in like a lot of the cast was found by like, they'd be walking in the village and they would see somebody in the park that had the right look. And they'd be like, can you sing? Great. You're in our show. It's similar to a lot of like what rent did when mm -hmm. rent was opening. Like they went and found street performers mm -hmm. and things. So like, um, and, but as their performance ended, they also were met with thunderous applause. And I believe they performed walking in space, which is a weird, uh, yeah, it is a weird song to perform for Tony Awards, honestly, yeah. in my opinion. Because it also, like, the song itself doesn't, because it's so it's supposed to be so trippy. Like, I didn't understand yeah. it until I did the show where I was like, oh, we're just tripping balls. Mm -hmm. like, we're just yeah, on drugs. It's the reset to pull the audience mm -hmm. down with you. It also, it's a really nice reset moment for lights and sound so that when you launch into the, 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 
the trip. Mm-hmm. It's big. Um, now, the show would go to run for four years and over 1,900 performances. That's it launched so cool. two national tours, a Los Angeles production that ran for two years, which was unheard of at the time, yeah. as well as dozens of professional international runs of the show that were so massively successful. I mean, we're talking France featuring Tim Curry as Wolf. And he also would do the London production. Now, what I will say is this is a time where like Ragney and Rado would go to work on the London production, but they weren't taken over to open it. But you all need to go and listen to the original cast recording, which I am actually not a big fan of because melodically there's no depth to a lot of the sound. Everybody's singing in unison, a lot of untrained voices where the London cast recording, they changed some things. Sheila is a completely different voice type. Mm. Um, there's some more orchestrations. It's really good. They did the same thing with the French production. Like we're also talking Japan in the 19 or like 1970s running hair. Like culturally, that just seems crazy to me. Yeah, that's wild. And the uh, show would go over in its run to sell over three million copies of the original cast recording, which was massive at the time. This was also the first show that had a row of $50 tickets set aside for corporate reserved seats. So this meant if a corporation wanted to come and be seen or wanted a special guest to come see the show, they had to pay the most expensive seat in the house and it was a single row, which I think is amazing because the general public ticket uh, capped out at about $11, which would only be $88 today. That's, and the, yeah, I mean, for, and, for nice right, seats. Well, and the average Broadway ticket right now for a back of like back of orchestra or front row mezzanine is over 150 to $175. Some shows it's at $200. So, but that's I guess we're not going to we talk. Rush and do the lottery. <laughs> but that's also why we're not going to talk about the accessibility of Broadway tickets yet, mm-hmm. I guess. So, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I hate when actors go, Broadway doesn't need to be accessible. And I go, that Who is literally not give true. me their names. Who says yeah. that? Because they like, <laughs> we need to get them out. Get him out of town. (laughs) Now, kind of what I'll call the second problem with the show that on the surface seems great. This is the first show touted to be completely integrated as a cast. Mm. Now, there were many shows before it that had black and white casts. And so where they consider this a completely integrated show, it's where the black actors and white actors roles are equal. Mm -hmm. They are on the same footing Socially, power-wise, their characters are quote-unquote equal. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of a few moments in the trip, no black actors are on stage just to play slaves or serpents. Now, according to the time, the show was applauded because one-third of the cast were not white and black. Mm. Um, They were black. And to the community at the time, this was groundbreaking. And a lot of the Broadway community thought it was a bad thing because they were like, oh, so you're just giving roles that could go to talented white actors to anyone just to say it's diverse, which still happens today. We still, yeah. Um, But to put it in perspective, the same year that this opened off Broadway, the Supreme Court ruling allowing interracial marriage was passed. Wow. So literally a month after that happened, hair opened at the public. And so it was still going to be considered faux pas to have black and white actors depicting love and sex on stage with multiple peoples of multiple genders. It, so this it's just was so wild. That's actually not, groundbreaking. That's not mm-hmm. long ago. Like mm-hmm. all of the, mm-hmm. like all of it. Like mm-hmm. we think sometimes, at least in my brain, and I have to constantly keep myself in check of like this, the civil rights movement like it was not that long ago because yep. talking about the show hair feels mm-hmm. like, Oh, that was yesterday. Like it just yeah. kind of feels closer because it's mm-hmm. part of like our zeitgeist. But yeah. then like when we talk about that historical moment of that, mm-hmm. of the case, like, it's just like that feels so long ago, but those people yeah. are still with us. Those people are still like the people who were at the trial. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. just wild. It's wild. Yeah. And it's also a thing to think about that hair opened on Broadway before the Stonewall riots happened. What? A year before the Stonewall riots happened, hair opened on Broadway. Wow. So we're also talking that like men kissed in the show. There was simulated sex between multiple genders, 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 no gender love on stage. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) 
But it unfortunately did not mean that the production or producers treated the black actors equally. Mm, there you go. There was and a constant, it. yeah, there was a constant dispute over treatment and pay with the black actors receiving the short end of the stick. Mm -hmm. There was not equal pay across the board. And during the run in 1968, after over 100 performances on Broadway, Lamont Washington passed away when a fire broke out in his department and oh. he fell to his death with burns covering more than 50% of his body. Oh. And this is a fire that to this day, a lot of his friends and cast members think was not an accident. And then his fall was also not an accident. Um, Who did he play in the show? What was his role? Uh, I believe he was HUD or mm. Walter. And, and um, HUD was, is such like mm -hmm. a outspoken mm -hmm. character is mm -hmm. very strong. Yeah, and in the book, Letting My Hair Down, it's described that the battle the black cast members had to go through to get the show to make a statement about his death, and the producers blatantly refused to allow them to have the matinee off to go to his funeral and services. They threatened to fire them. <gasps> Ugh, that yeah. awful, the show must go on mm -hmm. mentality mm -hmm. is disgusting. Mm -hmm. And so what a lot of people don't know, because she herself has tried to erase it from her life, mm -hmm. Diane Keaton was in the original Broadway cast of Hair. Oh, shit. She started off in the tribe and then quickly moved up to playing uh, Sheila um, after uh, the original actress vacated. And so she announced she was leaving the show, which she had been publicly vocal about having a miserable time in it mm. because she wanted to do, quote unquote, real theater like her friends who were on Broadway doing Shakespeare. So she had a miserable time. She made everybody's life miserable, those kinds of things. She will not talk about hair to this day, all these things. And so the producers were seeing every female tribe member who was white to replace her as Sheila and were refusing to see any of the black female cast members Ugh. to replace her in the role because it makes the most sense to pull from within your ranks. Because this is also before, like, you had to have swings. You mm -hmm. had to have understudies. So, like... On the Playbill Vault, it lists every cast member that came through the cast, which was like 150 in the four years. And there are only like, there are only like um, 10 or 12 people that were listed as understudies or swings. So like, I know a lot of them uh, just kind of covered each other's roles. And that's why this show is very an ensemble cast. So even if you're playing Sheila, you're also playing one of the mothers, you're doing mm -hmm. all these sorts of things. But I mean, we also had people like Meatloaf was in the show. Ben Vereen was in the show. Um, so a huge star uh, named Melba Moore uh, was in the show playing Dion. And so she would sing Aquarius mm -hmm. uh, and the cast sat down and it wasn't until they demanded it that Melba be allowed to sing for Sheila. Um, and she then was offered the role. So she would go on to be like they it, it had never been heard of. This is the very first time in theater history on Broadway, other than like Paul Robeson yeah. playing traditionally white Shakespeare characters where a black actor stepped into a role previously played by a white actor wow. um, and and it changed nothing about the character shortly after Ben Vereen would replace James Rado as Claude um, so oh, ben all Vereen the is Claude my heart so a lot of these actors like so a lot of these theaters now that are like but what if none of our principal cast of hair is white it's like great that's been done you're not being progressive yeah. um, <laughs> but like it's great that that's where people are going so it was clear that while the producers uh, were originally moved by the power of its political message this was also about being moved by the monetary success and the international fame of the show that it was gathering mm. And unfortunately, all this stage life wasn't just about puppy piles and love as it appeared to be. Many of the cast members re recounted how difficult it was doing the show with Rado and Ragni. Like, I can also imagine, like, being in a show with the actors who wrote it. It's going to be difficult. But also, there's, like, drugs playing a thing. And they would also say, like, after James Rado left the show, he would just show up at the theater and be like, I'm going on for Claude this week. Oh, my God. And so, like, pre-union, and, like, he also, so, Ragni, Jerome Ragni Ugh. died because of cancer, I believe, in the 70s. It might have been the 80s. Like, when he was very young, James Rado was in love with him. Mm. He was obsessed with him, even though he was married uh, and was not a homosexual that we know of. Um and so he has this really creepy relationship with a lot of burgers that 
replaced Ragni after. Yeah, it's he uh he has Ragni's I mean James Rado just passed away um in his nineties and so you know it's just one of those things that like he was obsessed with a lot of the actors that played Burger. He had Ragney's costumes like that he had. Like so but like, saw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So due to their drug use and inconsistency on stage, the show constantly changed and was a nightmare for a lot of the actors. And they did the show on Broadway, they did it in LA, they did it on tour. Like it was a lot of things. So the show was heavily publicized and it was huge. And hair decided to take its tribe on tour to the people who wanted it most. Mm -hmm. And when they got to cities, instead of being greeted by ovations and love of their fans at most theaters, they were greeted by lines of police officers, barring them entry from the theaters. At, at this time, most cities had few enforced uh, laws about performance and public nudity. Mm -hmm. And many cities also cited disrespect of American culture, American flags, and the crude and lascivious nature of the show. Uh, in the famous flag folding scene, which many theaters choose to edit out in the contemporary times, Jim Lavelle and Jack uh, Swigart, who are astronauts famously of the time, walked out of the Broadway show due to rage during this scene. Um, so when that's the show the stopped, point. that's, the, that's whole point. the whole fucking point, dudes, my dudes. Yeah. So when the show got to Boston, they weren't permitted to perform the show if they were going to keep that scene in. And so mm. it went to the state court. And of course, the state of Massachusetts held up what Boston wanted. So the show went on without we're folding the flags right before. Uh, don't put it down. Um, yeah, I don't think we had. We did not. No, we didn't I believe we cut. Yeah. Because I'm like, a lot of, that I mean, look at look at the Allentown. Uh, like patronage though mm. they would have gotten angry oh, they but pissed. like the whole idea actually is by holding the flag in such reverence the way we do and using it for imperialism you're disrespecting the flag mm -hmm. in more ways than anybody else mm -hmm. um and so it went to the supreme court where they allowed the performance of the scene moving forward in all other cities and they did win in the supreme court which was huge but in each city, they were greeted with police, local politicians slandering the show, and countless threats of violence, bombing, and death on the actors, company, and the show's crew. Jeez. Jonathan Johnson, who was in the Broadway cast and touring cast uh, as Claude, talks about it in the film Hair Let the Sunshine In, that he received many death threats in several cities, which scared him because he, like many cast members, had their spouses and small children on tour with them. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of nights they would have their 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 loved ones come in, like stay in their dressing rooms with them just in case. Now, Cleveland is where kind of our biggest occurrence we're going to talk about is. Cleveland had the largest crowds of protesters that the show faced. Um but where they were met with opposition, they also had the biggest crowds. And in this particular city, they sold 80,000 tickets for their three-week run wow. at the average ticket price of seven fifty, attracting everybody, including their mayor and his wife, who loved it. But during the first week of the run, dynamite was found sitting in front of the theater. <gasps> And these kinds of th uh, theaters were uh, just getting them lots of death threats uh, to the cast until one night um, where, you know, they were about halfway through the run. During the show, the entire cast got pulled off stage and the show ended abruptly because the hotel they were staying in had caught fire. And most of the people in the hotel were caught trapped inside. At the end of the very long night with the cast left in costume pacing outside with authorities, 33 people were pronounced dead, including two of the wives and two of the children of cast members of the show, oh including God. Jonathan Johnson, who is playing Claude. Oh, my God. Um, but, M, can you imagine that there is a worse part to this story? Are you kidding me? Nope. The worst part is that local police declared it was possible arson and looked straight to it. But to this day... No investigation was ever opened into the fire and no charges have ever been filed or leveled against anyone. Are you, are you, are you kidding me? Two children under two years old and two women under 30 died because they were simply going from town to town with their loved one who was an actor in the show. I, I'm truly, I'm truly speechless because that's like, that is the problem with America. Like I right get there. filled with rage and I get sick just thinking about it. Yeah. 
But M, their run in Cleveland did not end there. On the final day of the run, a live bomb was thrown from a car into the lobby of the theater, blowing out all the windows, shattering two storefronts next door to it, causing huge amounts of damage to the building, but thankfully no one died. Uh, was was it during a show where like audience was during, members were... Yes, it was during a matinee of their final day. Oh my God. The actors had had it. Yeah. So the next city they were going to was Denver. And... Denver's mayor and uh, governor of Colorado gave them a cold reception. (laughs) And they were told that they would be invoking a century old nudity law if they performed. And the cast uh, was met with local officials and police with guns pulled on the cast, not allowing them in the theater. Um, And the cast refused to oblige. And performed every night, and they weren't having it. They wanted Denver to feel hair so badly that on the final performance, the cast was handing out pills at the stage door as you signed in. Only eight of the 28 cast members uh, did not take this pill, which they were being told was, uh, you know, just a little. It was speed. They were told it was speed. It was acid, my dudes. So you have 20 cast members Midway through their performance, slurring their speech, crying, laughing, speaking in tongues, rolling around, having a trip in the middle of the show. Um, This is also a point to talk about that in every production of Hair, uh, a um, medical professional is brought in. Uh So you have young actors who are not trained for the stamina of eight performances a week. Um. And this score is not an easy one to sing, even with the original thing. So they were being given vitamin B shots, vitamin B shots, vitamin B shots uh, to kind of keep it going. But do you know what they were actually being injected with by the producers of the show? Okay, A methamphetamine. I was going to guess and I wasn't going to guess that. They were literally pumping these kids full of drugs to keep them so sped up to keep them going. But it's also highly addictive. Yeah. This is on tour. This is in LA. This is in New York. And it's just fine. Like to this day, it's still just fine. Like I really encourage everybody to watch Hair, uh, Let the Sunshine In, yeah. because the act the the five actors who are willing to speak about the show except James Carradine have really nothing good to say about the product, a process, especially Melba Moore, Ben Vereen, and one of the other black female cast members who really lays it the fuck out for them. And I, she's being interviewed on like a New Jersey beach in the middle of winter. And she's in like a toboggan. Like it's one of those things like God it's bless. wild, but I encourage everyone to watch it. It is an hour. Um, and so hair was met with, So much resistance all along the line. Church pickets in Evansville, Indiana, a fire marshal in Gladwater, Texas, threatened to close the theater. In St. Paul, Minnesota, a clergyman reportedly released 18 mice into the lobby to frighten theater goers away. And in Tennessee, an attorney predicted that a legal challenge to hair there would threaten to overshadow the scopes monkey trial with Darwin as the greatest trial for democracy ever. Yeah. One of the biggest crimes is that as I read articles from when Hare toured in 2009's Diane Paulus led revival that replicated the Force National Tour stops is that they were welcomed into cities as artistic rebels and celebrated as this Broadway piece of culture. Um, and current heads of police and mayors and governors said that what we just need to understand is that during the original tour, it was a different time. Oh my God. Americans were afraid and hair was just, uh, just encouraging their fear. And all they could do now is to make up for it, which is bullshit. We can say that it was a different time, but it never makes it right. And it doesn't make it okay. And it doesn't excuse away the absolute garbage. Cause also if you think about it, this doesn't go into 
the absolute hell that a lot of the black actors went through when they were going into the theaters in the South in towns where they still had to use different bathrooms, eat at different restaurants, drop at, shop at different grocery stores, could not stay at the same hotels because while yes, everything was integrated, the South, I mean, I think my mom said her school didn't actually integrate until 1967. And so like you have places where people don't feel like they need to apply by uh, federal rule, oh, yeah, which is just sure. happening. I want to talk about this right now for a second. We have a county clerk, two counties over from me in Florida, who so they do not have to perform gay marriages at the at the uh, courthouse is now refusing to do any courthouse marriages or give out any marriage license so that they do not have to do gay weddings. This is 2022 y'all yeah i'm like like i mean but also think about what's rolled back with women's reproductive mm -hmm. rights like trans health we have people fleeing to states there's only like four states that are actually safe for trans people to live mm -hmm. in right now like this is just fucked um oh <sighs> and so while i found the show that i have always loved flawed mm -hmm. in that it is not nearly as woke as people still think it is it's still a polarizing message that in many ways is still important today, even though I think we have a very different perspective and we have a better way to talk about it now. I mean, Mickey talked about it a lot mm -hmm. when she was on the show with us. Yeah. Um, but like many musicals do as they reach international stardom, uh, Rent, Spring Awakening, this kind of this, uh, hair, their message gets buried inside of the personal feelings of the audience that take it away from the show mm -hmm. so they kind of cherry pick what they want and as i see regional college and community theater productions i find directors are focusing on the openness and the idea of wokeness of the time and not focusing on the actual message of the story so like what i mean here is yeah. this happens a lot so like when i saw dream girls on the west end this happened where they gloss over the civil rights aspects of the show hair. Um, and you know, I feel this a little bit about the production we did together mm -hmm. that like a lot of directors want to focus in on the fun and the upbeatness of the hippie movement and not focusing on why Claude's death matters in the end, because Claude represented hundreds of thousands of dead American youth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got like Jeannie and Chrissy that represented so many people, Berger, Hud, Dion, all of these characters that represented people and their individual stories are kind of put aside to have a flashy, fun 60s musical. Mm -hmm. It's like when I d directed a production and designed it, my producer literally said, don't worry about costumes, just put everybody in jeans and tie-dye. That's all we need. Ugh. And I was like, that's just like, no, fuck, no. That's, that's ugly. just, yeah, it's also ugly. It's also ugly. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so this, again, happens with a lot of shows from the civil rights era uh, that have political messages. This happens with Hairspray all the mm. time. We focus on being everyone's friend and everybody being equal that you were literally glossing over the whole point of, you know, and it's that thing that John Waters says that even racists love Hairspray. And so, like, it's far from a perfect show. And, like, Motormouth Maybell is still even... Like they used aspects of minstrelsy to mm -hmm. write her character. Um, and at the end of the day, you still got white saviors doing a lot of things in that show. So like, I love hairspray. It's great. It's a bop, but like, don't do it as like your diversity show of the year. Cause it's not cutting it. Don't do ragtime as your diversity show of the yeah. year. Cause it's not cutting it. Cause like, again, at the end of the day, you have three white dudes writing the show from the perspective of people who are out and queer, not white, female mm -hmm. like Chrissy being written by three men makes so much more sense to me now even though Frank Mills is such an incredible piece yeah. um and was taken actually from like you know so much of it was built and put together by people they knew like even like Sheila there's so many nuances to Sheila that are lost if you don't have a director and an actress who are really capable of pulling those characters together mm -hmm. um so you know it's just it's one of those things that like we, the dramaturgy needs to be so important and so thorough. Like when I did hair, 
not to toot my own horn or anything. I did toot, a year toot, and a half toot, of toot, toot, toot. I I worked really hard to make sure that there was a year and a half of dramaturgy before we even started rehearsal, mm. so that we were going into like imagine like we were focusing on the struggle, the politicization. Sorry, everyone. Come on, big word. Um, but Absolutely. Like, but like, I also missed the mark because I really just wanted to copy Diane Paulus's production in many ways. So yeah. like, that came out on me. But like, it's one of those things. Like, if you're focusing on like the love and the hippiness of it, like it's suddenly weird when like the burger Sheila Claude thing being like this weird poly am love triangle is weird and like not then you're not understanding why Claude is lost somewhere between his devotion to family and like society and everything else so Mm. it's just one of those things that like you have to focus on both because the reason that there were be-ins, there were lockouts, there were protests, there were all of these things is because ultimately it was about the war. It was about the protest and it was about using aspects that made like the old white people uncomfortable and like spoke to the youth culture. Mm. And, you know, but it was also about like misusing philosophy from men who weren't necessarily informed, but it's also like, if I work with a Claude who didn't read any Timothy Leary, has never watched a Fellini movie, like all of these messages, though what's really funny is being like, I got why Claude was obsessed with Roman Polanski in 1968, but like now I go, ooh, red flag. Yeah. Ooh, ooh red flag. Red flag. <laughs> um, but it's also one of those things that like, also Sheila being from money, like she goes to NYU, mm-hmm. the idea that Sheila is it's one of the few things that in the movie I thought was interesting that they focused on was that Sheila, like we meet Sheila as she's riding a horse in central park because her family owns horses and they live in a mansion in white plains. Like that makes sense because Sheila does come from money and she's probably funding a lot of their lives because she just wants to use her dad's money in a way that's going to do good. And so like focusing on that aspect of like Sheila as a person mm. as there are all these aspects that like Berger doesn't necessarily have a family wolf's comes from like that. Like he doesn't know who his dad is and loves his mom. And his mom is probably a sex worker. Like that's just those things. And like Claude's parents love him in the only way that they can. But it's so interesting to think about it. But then like, we also don't know anything about Jeannie other than that she likes drugs and fucking. Yeah. And like, like Chrissy loves a hell's angel. Like we know we, and we never know anything about Dion. We never know anything about Ronnie. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about HUD other than the fact that he's the black guy. Yeah. And you don't know anything about Walter. Cause he's the only other like named character. And so, you know, it's one of those things that it's just, it's just one of those things that like you have to focus on all aspects of what was happening in the world and figuring out who each of these characters are in order to actually make this poignant. Mm. And so, you know, that is just a little behind the conflicts uh, of hair, the original tribal love rock opera, love rock musical. And my sources today are hair. Let the sun shine in a video documentary, a good hair day by Jonathan Johnson, a 2011 Denver post article, New York times, obituary archives, good hair day, two years with the love musical hair book, the hair Wikipedia an NPR article called hair at 50 a t magazine article by ben brantley which is really weird because he has no theater backbone uh (laughs) and a pit news article and a 2008 broadway world article uh so this was a really quick show today we could do so much talk so much more about this but it's one of those things that like we see so much of like fan culture now and hair truly did revolutionize how people watch theater it brought new people into the theater Mm -hmm. uh which is really funny that you then look at the movie and it is so missing the mark in so many ways. Yeah. Like it's, I get it, but also because it was then made in 79, like 10 years later after, well, and the thing was, Hair was revived less than eight years after out, after it uh, opened on Broadway or closed on Broadway. It was revived again and ran two years in the late 70s. Mm. And most of, a lot of that cast is in the movie. Like Annie Golden, mm-hmm. who plays Jeannie in the movie. Even though Jeannie in the movie is a weird mix of Chrissy yeah. and... Yeah, like, um, like the same person, kind of. Yeah, and we meet like Hud's wife and child that he just abandoned, which I think is really negative That plays on negative, to I was me. Say negative stereotypes. Yeah. Um, and again, there's so much of this movie, or the show, that 
takes the black experience and the queer experience out of it because it's not written by anybody that ever came out like is inherently queer yeah. or was anyone but white. So like, it's just those things that like, I love hair and I appreciate it. I would do hair again in a second, but much like we talked about Mickey, I think, um, you have to understand the context of the time and how we can change the lens of how we're doing the story. Mm-hmm. Um, though I do want to tell a funny little anecdote when, when I did the the show, uh, there is this organization called the theater association of New York and they adjudicate uh, high school, collegiate university and community regional theaters. Um, and they come in, you send them the script in advance, somebody comes in, adjudicates the show, and then they give you awards. And so when the woman came to adjudicate my production, apparently a couple people fought over who was going to get to do it. This woman did it because she was trying to convince one of my actors and my musical director to come and work with her in her production of Company. Um, and in the script, there's a lot of Native American iconography. The original poster for Hair Off-Broadway was Five Native American Chiefs. And honestly it feels less appropriative than a lot of things that we do today because if the the hippie culture actually, in many ways, a lot of the people who are really involved in it understood the Native American culture because the Native American fight in the, the mid-century was also part of what the hippie movement was trying to move because it was also like Native, Native men were being forced to serve mm-hmm. and it was just like, I mean, we, again whole podcast that we could do yeah. about how the American government has literally ruined. And so in the script, it says at one point that at the top of the show, um, one actor puts beads, love beads on Claude and one person puts a red feather in his uh, headband. And, you know, a feather was very common to be woven in, you know, today it's uh, a lot of hippie culture is now seen really ripped apart in music festival culture, which is another whole bullshit. Um, And she went, I just felt it was really culturally inappropriate. So the script calls for a red feather and doing research. The red feather is because they used a brown, like duck's feather off Broadway and at the cheetah. But when you go from a 200 seat house to a strip club to then a thousand seat Broadway house, no one could see the feather in his hair. Yeah. Uh, on the because it was a Ming Cho Lee set, um, and so it was a very dark backdrop with just lots of like city things, and so and she was like, it just felt very culturally inappropriate for you to put a red feather on stage because I felt like you were mocking Native culture and all these things, which is funny because she's from Seneca Falls, which is where the Seneca people were driven out and put on reservations, which are still up there because that's where the the Five Nations of of um, uh, the Indian communities are from that area of central New York. Okay. And my whole cast turned at me and she was like, why? It just seems like you did all your research otherwise. And that just ruined it for me. And I was like, well, it's in the script. And she was like, no. And I was like, you have your copy of the script. And she was like, all right, moving on. And so, uh, I did not get an award for costumes because, uh, or best musical because she, uh, did not like the red feather, which I thought was really funny. So it's like, sometimes we are overly woke and performative and not, yeah, performatively not woke. Our, I think yeah. We've more. not done our research. Yeah. So I think the key is to, uh, make sure you know it's fully thought out fully researched mm-hmm. also at this point maybe you don't just let like a white straight middle-aged dude direct the show mm-hmm. <laughs> the one thing that upset me watching through the hair documentary was all of the actors were like youth today don't understand the struggle and none of them have stepped up to do the work that we did in our generation and so it was filmed in 2006 and 2007 and i was just so angry because i was like okay whatever fuck off because it's so funny to watch that now like 15 years after the documentary came out because now i feel like we would say much different things about the current generation of youth so and what was your takeaway playing a character like chrissy who you're not given a lot dramaturgically in the script Mm -hmm. and you all like you between you and jim and like what lex did with your costume what was your kind of lookout playing that character and kind of what you did to explore dramaturgically um I think I did, so uh, in context, uh, the way that my Chrissy was costumed, she was very, like, mod. Like, she mm-hmm. it, like she was, like, clearly based so much of her style off of Twiggy and, um, and that uh, style of pop culture. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think I did, and there's so much about Chrissy that I took away from it 
and it's very interesting. I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, I was really, maybe I didn't do uh, dramaturgy in terms of like where the character originated from, but I Mm -hmm. connected with her on this level of um, truly not feeling like she belongs in the life that Mm -hmm. um, she had left behind. And um, I think that was probably me not, <laughs> we gonna get deep, but I think that was me not addressing my queerness to myself. Yeah. And, um, but just knowing something's different about me, especially at the time when I was doing hair, my family was not pleased I was doing hair. And um, there were people in my family that didn't come to see the show because they didn't agree with it. And I was just like, it's fine. I was like, it's fine. it's fine. And I was like, I'm also a grown woman and I'm going to, this is not the first of these types of choices I'm going to make. And it was yep. a scary choice because I, it was the first time that like my people pleasing, I like faced my people pleasing like habits and was just like, I want to do this. I want to push myself. I want to take a risk and I'll be fine. I mean, mm-hmm. it also helped that my fiance now husband is in it, but was in it. But like, so I felt like even more safe and I felt very safe in the production. Mm-hmm. But like, I just felt like there were so many beautiful moments with Chrissy. Like the way that we opened up the second act was, mm-hmm. I think it was in the script of like, she's listening to an old record. Yep. And I was just like, wow, like I connect with this so deeply of being like, oh, I grew up listening to this. I feel so connected. And then literally throwing it away and be like, but. I got to fucking like, I got to just move on and find mm-hmm. who I am. And mm-hmm. um, I made a lot of jokes, but like, I think there is a big uh, truth to like how I think Chrissy, like what her life was like after Claude mm-hmm. dies in war. Like I'm my, my true mentality was like, Oh, Chrissy is the type of character that she's searching so deeply for um, acceptance and love and guidance and parenting and, mm-hmm. And someone to shepherd her because she's too afraid to shepherd herself. That like she, my mentality, and this is quite dark, but like my mentality is that she became a Manson girl. Like she became mm-hmm. part of the family because I believe it. she has that's like, I would, I'm like, wow, the way, at least the way I was playing her and like what I was bringing out, she's like, she has no idea. Like the fact that she's in love with a, a hell's angel, like she has no idea. Mm-hmm. She just wants acceptance that she's like, I, and like, she like, listens to burger again burger so problematic in so many ways mm-hmm. where it's just like she's trying she's trying desperately to find belonging mm-hmm. that she will go to the most dangerous of places not saying that the the hippie culture there was dangerous but like like that was my interpretation of like she will do anything to feel loved and to mm-hmm. but she won't except looking within and yeah. um because that's that's fucking scary to do and mm-hmm. I look back on that character so much and on how, like, I really put a mirror up to myself with that character and was just like, well, what am I going to choose to do? And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I'm going to choose to look in and, like, fucking do the work. And I'm still doing it now, and it hurts most of the time. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's so, it, it's, you are you are a thousand percent correct. But, I mean, talking about not doing, really thinking about the background of her as a dramaturg, how many people are actually taught to do their dramaturgy as musical theater performers in colleges in, Truly not. in training programs. Truly not. Yeah. The fact that we now have colleges that have a dramaturg on some productions, whether your director listens to them or not, or ever <laughs> speaks to the cast, like that, that. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those, it's just like, ooh, we, hmm, ooh, we, but yeah. And it's so funny to think about what happens to that tribe after Claude's death, because like we think of Claude's death as really pivotal. It means a lot to Sheila and Berger because, because they're so tied to him and Jeannie because Jeannie's in love with him and Wolf's in love with him. I definitely think Wolf's yeah, in love with him. So Wolf's too. also in love with Berger. Wolf loves everybody. But also when you're looking at Wolf and Chrissy, I thought it was interesting. And it was also because you went back to your alma mater to do it. You, mm. Chrissy's normally played by the youngest person in the tribe. I was probably one portrayed. of the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Chrissy and Wolf are like, only there because they're tolerated, but not because they're liked, mm. which is seen in that scene where ever good morning starshine, when everybody is like separating off to go home and like Chrissy's kind of going with one of the other girls, but it's just so she doesn't have to go with, with, uh, um, with Wolf and like Wolf, nobody, you know, and then it's, uh, she listens. Good morning, starshine. Oh, also one of the most famous songs from that show. I, I don't yeah. know. I forget it, but yeah, it's, it's just so, 
interesting because like part of me is like i feel like burger spirals and burger dies like burger has an overdose he doesn't last and to and to me i think sheila leaves them behind she might take genie with her maybe Mm. uh i like to think that they become a very power lesbian couple in the 70s uh but i because i also see sheila going on to be a gertrude stein Mm -hmm. style uh, a character i was gonna say i was like she becomes an activist yeah, I definitely see HUD Even becoming more. a Black Panther. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of these things that, like, it's clear the paths that they're going. And it's not necessarily that Claude means the same thing to all of them. But I think, and it's not that Claude's the first person that has died. Because they make it evident that they know other people that have died. But it was just that moment. Because they see, like, I still have a hard time dramaturgically figuring out why Claude is the savior moment for so many of them. Mm-hmm. Like, he is this lamb. But I think it's because... He's a lamb to the slaughter, which is weird for me in the movie when they just meet Claude. He's this like farm boy from Iowa that's like has to go to New York to be drafted. Uh, though I will say something the movie does better than anything else is the black boys, white boys. Mm. Where it's the where it's the uh, the uh, army recruiters singing to about the boys and the whitey tidies. And I was like, I love this. <laughs> I need to watch that clip. But oh, it's so good. But also like you don't. You can't beat the revivals. Black boys, white boys. It's so good. The voice. Actually, I'm gonna argue that the act. For me, some of the best hair performances are the Actors Fund from 2001. Yes, that album. Shoshana. Is, that, Shoshana that Beans. I believe in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the black boys, white boys. With it's so good, but like. Uh, oh, Julia Murney singing Where Do I Go, yeah. which is so good. But Harvey Firestein singing Air. But <laughs> I was like, it sounds like Harvey Firestein has not breathed clear yeah. air in many, many it's, a year. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. Um, no, it, that's but a I great say, album for sure. Yeah. I would say I would love to do Hair with you again and have you play like Genie this time around. Or have honestly, what I think could be really fun is have you play Wolf. <gasps> Ooh. would be really fun yeah ever since we had mickey on i was like how can we do hair where i can have mickey be our sheila oh yeah and, oh my god but i also still i still really want to do because there is a contingency that was left out during this time which was the queer rights rights movement is there but also the underlying trans rights movements mm. that were forming because at this point with queer rights you had the mattachine and the sisters of belitis who were about respectability and then you had everyone else, which were the weird queerdos, the trans people, the the trans sex workers that were running kind of two different queer liberation movements. And to me, what I think would be very interesting, and I think I've told you this before, is because Sheila comes from money and uh, have her play a Christine Jorgensen style uh, woman who is a trans woman playing Sheila because then her love with Burger, it's very different. Burger is very abusive in many mm. ways, not because we want to watch, I don't want to watch trans people suffer, but seeing her have this love that is so heteronormative and everything that her parents would have hated, even though they were like supportive, whether they knew what she was doing. Because then to me, it gives Easy to Be Hard this incredible. Yeah. Well, Easy to Be Hard is like, when you hit the right emotional note yep. for that, like at first mm-hmm. it's like, what the fuck is this song? But when mm-hmm. you really hit it, it's like, oh, and that's, I feel like that's not a good terminology to use, but uh, when you really um, understand it and yep. and bring it forth in an emotionally like impactful way, it's like, that song is heartbreaking. I love when I see scene work from here because there's not much. Yeah. And like a lot gets cut in modern productions because we cut around to be kind of like the Diane Paul script, which really the script of the Diane Paul's version works. Because there's like that 22 page section in Act One where they act out Claude's Fellini movie starring Sheila. Like it's yeah. so fucking weird. Um, but I always love seeing uh, young actors and actresses doing the scene where Sheila comes in, where it's Sheila Franklin. Um, she left Franklin it's like it's a Mr. NYU and she's a protester I believe in love Um, but where she talks about the March on Washington Because she's clearly the most politically yeah. driven of everyone, where everybody else wants to do the fun, sexy parts of the activism and the sit-ins. Sheila is going city to city, and like she's in school because she has to be, but like she's doing the work. Yeah. Um. You know, again, that's a little more white saviory with Sheila, but like 
she's also like, fuck you, Burger, you're a piece of shit. Um, Because Burger is a piece of shit. Yeah, but also, I understand the hot obsession with Burger. Because um, who doesn't love a chaotic bisexual like Burger? Um, <laughs> as funny as Gabe played Burger. Buy wife um, energy from that man. Um, <laughs> oh, no, but the there would definitely be moments in that where I was just like, yeah. I was like, that's scary. <laughs> like, that's like, scary, yeah. Like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> but it was, I, I loved getting to know Gabe during that production because I we had one wig in the show. It was Gabe's lace front. Because that, that man was bald. <laughs> Bald. But, you know, which is kind of powerful. Those moments. NYU did a production, I think it was 2011, where the beginning of the show, going into Aquarius, everyone came out and shaved their head on stage the opening night. And then so at different parts of the production, people would shave so that everybody, including the women, were bald by the final production. And the whole production was white and stark and military driven. Like it's very interesting because they were trying to take an Afghan war approach to it because there is really interesting things with the exception of the trip and that there's no really technology in the show. It doesn't, other than LBJ, there's not a ton of really specific time references Mm -hmm. to the show other than that. We know it's hair. Um, but it was so great kind of getting to put on Gabe's wig every day because he had such a process with burgers. So that yeah. was always good. And to see the rest of the boys that were just like, mm, uh, even though I love I love all of you that are listening because I hope some of you are listening. But yeah, that was always good to see like the character he put in because then I feel more at peace when an actor is doing really rough things in the name of the character yeah. on stage because burgers like the fucking yellow shirt scene going into Easy Be Hard. Yeah. But like you also then understand that uh, that she's Sheila is nineteen or twenty, yeah, and even though she has these big ideas, that she's still she's still like Burger's probably her first real love, yeah. And like whose first love isn't toxic as fuck? Like <laughs> we know they don't last. Like I see them breaking up like soon after the show. Or I was like, gonna say I think Claude like, was the only thing keeping them. Yeah, because I see because I feel like Claude brought out the best parts of Burger and. Sheila was there to see them, but like uh, Claude also probably like because Claude was this weird obsessed with Sheila. That's the one gross part of the show for me is Claude's obsession and his treatment of Jeannie. But like yeah. again, I feel like I could pick the show apart. But um, thank you for coming on this journey with me. It was a quick one. Thank you I for appreciate it. thank you for taking me. I felt I felt reminiscent. I I, I tell you what. <laughs> I wanted to. I realized it after, and I was like, "Well, I can't say it after the fact." But I didn't say, I didn't say absolutely not once. <gasps> absolutely not. You did not. Uh, it's fine. You know how I feel about me not saying absolutely not. Absolutely uh, not. <laughs> oh, and you know what? You know what? Burger is two words. Red flags. Red flags. Red flags. Red we got them in. We, you we did got say red flags in. earlier. Oh, did, okay, you didn't yeah. sing it, but I, I went. I was like. No. Oh, a little shout out, shout out to one of my coworkers who I work with who I didn't know listened to this show, but I know he listens to my other shows. Uh, the, I said something and at work today, y- there yesterday, he just looked at me and went, absolutely <gasps> not, and winked, and I went. <gasps> my heart is a flutter. Oh. And I have a little, cr- I already have a little crush on him, so I was just like, oh, stop it. I'm such a Leo for this. You're literally stroking my ego in Leo season. Oh, so. uh, my Leo moon? cow jumped over it baby come on now oh yes oh uh em what can everyone do at home if they want to interact with us more they can follow us on our social media they can email us if you have email us or send voice memos through dms (gasps) send the both voice memos because i can download them send them send them send them if you have any um Honestly, if you have any story that's related to true crime and theater, most of the time we're saying, please bring us your ghosty stories and your spoopy stories. But if you have anything else that's like, oh, I worked in this theater and this shit happened and it feels very true crime-esque or at least um, scandalous in some way or has a lot of weight, please share us because, share with us because we know it's everywhere. We mm-hmm. we know they're, the two are just so very, very linked. And uh, we would also just love to hear from you. And most importantly, please rate and subscribe and if you can please leave a comment on apple itunes so that we can get our voices and the stories that we are telling and like maddie today so very well researched and beautifully intricate um to um to more people who want to hear uh our version of storytelling Em, do you know what I really want to hear? And I hope it's out there. Mm. A two actors who starred in a community theater production of Bonnie and Clyde that became a real life Bonnie and Clyde. That's what I really want. 
Like, how has this not happened? Because community mm. theaters love Bonnie and Clyde. They do. And I really just want somebody that starred in it, and then they went absolute ape shit and became real life they Bonnie went, and Clyde. They went full on meta. They went full on, yeah. like, I am this character. Also, I was thinking about it today. Why has there not been a big musical about a bank heist? Like, I feel like that's mm. the perfect thing for, like, a really dramatic musical. I feel like... I feel like Bonnie and Clyde and kind of how it went yeah, over. Bonnie, like yeah, I feel like uh-huh. how it went over probably deterred people. And they were probably like, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's one true. of these days we will get it. Bonnie. That's about, I feel like it would take us like two episodes to, to get Bonnie and oh, Clyde out yeah. because it's so much. I, well, I, I was just it. listening to another podcast and they were talking about the movie dog days of summer, which was in, uh, based on a true thing. And I, I was listening to it and I went, why is this not become a musical? Cause it's mm. about these, queer men who are stuck in the corporate structure who are not making enough money who end up robbing a bank so that one of the men's wives who is a trans woman can afford her sexual reassignment surgery. Ooh, at least yeah. that would be a great play if anything. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love it. Well, Al Pacino played the characters in the movie. Chris Sarandon is apparently it's amazing. I need to go watch it. Yeah, but, um, until next time. Until next time, my love. Let me guess. You're bummed because your acceptance letter from a certain school of witchcraft and wizardry was never delivered by Owl. Or you're sitting there wishing you could find more stories about wizarding schools that are a little more inclusive and open. I was just like you. Well, that was until I discovered Saved by the Spell. From Dreamer Productions, the company behind podcasts like Saturday Morning Confidential and Exit Stage Death comes Saved by the Spell, your spellbinding gateway taking you chapter by chapter through magical academies from across this literary reality and the next. Class starts in November, where you will go inside Breakbills University for magical pedagogy from Lev Grossman's The Magicians. Saved by the Spell can be found exclusively on Dreamer Productions' Patreon feed by following the link in the show notes below. So get ready, students, to be saved by the spell. Nostalgia is one of the strongest forces in the human psyche and is responsible for the continued existence of some of our favorite fandoms. From the minds behind the Dole Up and Dreams podcast and Isolation Cast Voices from Quarantine, Saturday Morning Confidential takes you on a deep dive into the properties that helped influence the artists and creators of today. So whether you are a Goonie, a Gem Girl, a Digi Destined, or you just want to return to Oz, new episodes release on Fridays bi-weekly starting January 1st of 2021. And join us on the Wednesdays after the main show for the Serial Killer Radio Hour, where we sit down with the people responsible for the toys, shows, and fandoms that you love. Now you can find Saturday Morning Confidential at certainpov.com backslash smcpod or on your favorite podcast platforms. So don't forget to tune in for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Exit Stage Death is brought to you by Dreamer Productions. This episode was audio engineered and edited by Maddie Limerick. And our theme is Antisocial Dance Party by Brett Eagleston from the Let's Rewatch podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Stage Death Podcast. On Twitter at Stage Death Pod. And send us your favorite chilling theater stories at Stage Death Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon.com at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of $2 a month keeps quality content coming your way on your favorite podcatcher app. Join us for more chilling true stories on the next episode of Exit Stage Death. 